Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 4. Jesus was tempted, he was rejected, and he was misunderstood. His hometown was so angry over what he said that they wanted to kill him. And that's how Jesus started his public ministry. He wasn't a hometown hero, but he was God's anointed one, chosen and sent to intervene, chosen and sent to interfere with the broken world. What did that intervention look like then, and what does it look like here and now? Let's read Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, 
in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. We'll pause there. A lot going on in Luke 4. There's three things I pray we see. First, Jesus is tempted. Second, he is sent. And third, he is at work. First, Jesus is tempted. We could call this the wilderness showdown. It's like the opening scene of an action-packed movie where the main character goes head-to-head with the villain for the very first time. Jesus is led into the wilderness or desert to face the devil alone. It's like an old western. Streets are cleared. No one's around. It is a wilderness showdown. You know, after the nation of Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, they entered the wilderness, the desert. In the same way, after being baptized, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So Israel goes through the waters of the Red Sea, which God miraculously parted for them, and they were delivered out of Egyptian slavery. And Jesus goes through the waters of baptism and is led into the wilderness. Forty days in the wilderness. It's like Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness themselves, in the desert. And the devil, or in Hebrew, the Satan, the adversary, he's the tempter. He is the accuser. He's the slanderer. And we've met him before. The opening pages of Genesis. The one who whispered lies and accusations into the ears of Adam and Eve. So he's been opposing God's purposes and God's people from Genesis on. Just as Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, the devil makes his move. Two stories to keep in mind as we explore uh, Luke 4. Two stories. First, the story of Adam and Eve. Keep this story in mind. Adam being the first son of God who failed miserably. And the second story, Israel, the nation of Israel, declared God's firstborn. They were declared God's firstborn, but they too failed miserably. Now Jesus is on the scene. He's Israel's king. He's Israel's rightful representative. He's the son, the son of God. And he's facing temptation. The devil comes at him in the wilderness. And there are three temptations that we're given here. The first, we see it. The devil comes at him and he questions his very identity. Jesus' very identity. He says in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. What's he saying? Essentially, he is telling Jesus that you can't trust God. You can't trust God. It's the same accusation that was given to Adam and Eve. You can't trust God. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. 
Go ahead and use your newly confirmed status to perform an act of power to satisfy your hunger. Prove your sonship. Prove your power. It's a challenge. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Prove it. Are you the Son of God? Prove it. Demonstrate your supposed power. Why does he say, turn this stone to bread? This is, we're getting at the trust issue here. Turn this stone to bread. Because in the desert, in the wilderness, Israel, just days after being delivered from Egyptian slavery, were grumbling about lack of bread. They lost sight of God's faithfulness and provision. They didn't trust him. Jesus' response, he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. What does he say? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And if we read that passage, it, it continues on. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That is where our sustenance comes from. Jesus knew it, and he quotes it in the face of temptation. Where the adversary, where the devil, the Satan, he's saying, you can't trust God. You can't. And Jesus answers with scripture. Second temptation. This is about position and power in exchange for worship. And Jesus talked about the devil himself later in John. Uh, Jesus talked about the devil as the ruler of this world. But we have to remember the devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. He, he's filled with self-deception and arrogance. All authority belongs to God. All authority. All authority belongs to God. So the devil here is, is asking, though, for an exchange that far too many have given into. He's asking for worship. The worship of the one true God in exchange for lesser things that promise power and authority. And people have given into this time and time again, not only looking for power and authority, but satisfaction. There's this awful exchange that has gone down in the hearts of man, of mankind. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1 in a similar way. I want to read it. It's too good not to, too important not to. In Romans chapter 1, he's talking about the wrath of God being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because they're suppressing the truth it's like they're just pushing the truth away and down because they they want to do their own thing he says for what can be known about god in verse 19 of romans 1 what can be known about god it's plain as day for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world paul's saying you can't deny it god exists and we know it And it goes on, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they, mankind, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You're like, all right, yeah, true. People did that back in the day. I mean, you look at the Egyptians. They worshiped, you know, all these false gods and animals. They had these uh, statues and these carvings and, and all this kind of 
you know, this weird stuff. And we, we watch it on the History Channel and we kind of shake our heads and we're like, oh, those ancient people. Right now, this exchange continues to go down. Exchanging the beauty and glory of God for created things. Instead of God being central, we put ourselves, we are created. We put ourselves at the center. And we put other things at the center. Believing that we'll be satisfied. We start to pursue power and authority and satisfaction outside of the boundaries that God has set up for us, thinking that we'd be better off. An exchange goes down. The Satan is looking for Jesus to make this exchange. Come on, man, fast track to authority. I got it, and I'll give it to you. All you got to do is worship me. Jesus says, no, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone, him only shall you serve. Then the third temptation. This is about controlling God or trying to. In other words, God is yours to control, like some divine genie in a bottle. The devil quotes. He actually quotes scripture. He quotes Psalm 91, but he uses it the wrong way. He's using it for his own interests. It makes it sound like Jesus could actually do something that demonstrates trust in the Father. Look what he says in verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, here he is, the adversary, the deceiver is quoting scripture. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Come on, demonstrate your trust in the Father. When in reality, what Jesus would be doing is putting God to the test. If you are the son of God, is what the adversary said. If you are the son of God, He's pulling out that if again. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Come on. Let your father deliver you. Make God do your bidding like a divine genie in a bottle. Israel put God to the test again and again and again in the wilderness. And Jesus says, no, it is written. It is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So each temptation that Jesus faced pushed against Jesus' relationship with the Father. It pushed against his identity as the Son. It did. Truth is, when we become Christians, we need to be ready for that fight. Because there will be that, that struggle to believe, oh, am I a son? Am I a daughter of God? Am I a child? Is this, is this work a finished work? What Jesus did for me, is it, is it real? Can I lean on it? Are you really? All these, all these thoughts. Are, that was nothing. What, what are you doing? We've got to fight those. But this is a unique battle that Jesus is facing for us. It's a private fight. There's no one around to cheer him on. Temptation usually hits the hardest when you're alone. Let's just, let's just be honest Lies whispered when we're alone are the hardest to fight. These are appealing alternatives, at least in the moment, to God's way. Jesus is fully man. He is fully God, and he is fully man. So let's just stop there. He's fully man. I don't want us to move on too quickly from this. 
fully man. Don't picture Jesus as a, some superhuman, superman figure lifting heavy rocks and horses and in a single bound jumping over mountaintops. That's not, that's not how Jesus behaved. He was tested and he came out the other side having stood his ground against the tempter. Steadfast obedience to the will of the Father is the point of this. Jesus passed the test. Jesus, the Son of God, he, he stood his ground. He didn't give in to temptation like Adam did. Jesus, the second Adam, in whom we find hope and righteousness, he obeyed the Father. Jesus, the true Israel of God, he stood his ground. devil used the same tricks he used since the beginning. There's nothing new. Just throwing out the same lies and accusations. He's got no other hand to play. Jesus didn't cave. Every follower of Jesus now, listen, we will be tested. We will be tempted. My question is, how will you stand your ground? Have you learned to recognize the seductive voices and the attractive lies that are, are, that are there, that are going to come at you? When you become a Christian, I've got news for you. You entered the resistance. You enter a fight. It's a good fight. But you're given all that you need to stand your ground. And I have some really good news. Jesus, in this passage, is standing his ground for you and for me. All right, let's keep going. He was tempted. Second, he sent. This is a hometown announcement. In verse 1, we see that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. And then here in verse 13, as he comes to Galilee, and in particular his hometown of Nazareth, he returns in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus is ministering in the power of the Spirit. He goes to Nazareth. This is his hometown. He's on, it's on the Sabbath. He enters the synagogue. This was customary. The scroll of Isaiah is passed to him, and he chooses Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and then he dips into chapter 58, verse 6, and he reads it. Now I want to read it again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, verse 18, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he drops the mic. <laughs> mic drop, rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant, sits down. Every eye is fixed on him, every eye. And then he says something so explosive that it continues to shake the world. He says this, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And I guarantee you could hear a pin drop. He's saying the anointed one that Isaiah speaks of, I'm him. I'm that guy. You know the day of salvation foretold by Isaiah? It's begun. anointed he's the anointed one he's sent to do what isaiah says to proclaim to proclaim what good news gospel to who to the poor who are the poor the broken the exploited the alienated the disadvantaged 
all who are distressed and in trouble due to sin, broken so much that they, they have nothing left for the fight. Nothing. Bound up so much with addiction that they can't even imagine what freedom feels like. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says that Yahweh, He, Yahweh, has sent me, the God who is, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Bind. To bandage. It expresses personal attention. When my kid scrapes his knee, what do I do? Hey, you're on your own, kid. Yeah, it looks bad. A lot of blood there. Good luck. No. <laughs> like, hey, let me help you with that. Yeah, that's gross, man. Oh, my goodness. I'm about to pass out. I'll get mom. <laughs> let, me, let me bind that up. Give it my attention. Show compassion. That's the imagery we have here. Personal attention and compassion. But not only attention... Not only compassion. This is God's intervention. I want you to think the word intervention or interference. God is getting involved. He is stepping into the brokenness of this world. And He's doing it in His Son, Jesus. He's come to loosen the power of sin and shame and evil over our lives. This is big news. He's come to proclaim liberty to the captives or to prisoners. Release from bondage or burdens that you've brought on yourself through your own rebellion, through your own disobedience. And also release from the bondage and the burdens that those around you maybe have have laid on you from your oppressor. I've come to set you free is what Jesus is saying. The day of salvation is here. I'm the one. I'm the anointed one. I'm the sent one. And I've come to announce good news of freedom for you. Freedom. Freedom from the greatest oppressor. Freedom from the greatest uh, oppression that, that you've been under, that all of humanity has been under. That weight of sin and evil and brokenness. Now I've stepped in and I'm lifting it and I'm setting you free. That's why he came. That's what he's announcing. He says the year of the Lord's favor is here. When debts would be forgiven. This is the year of Jubilee. You can read about it in Leviticus 25. All debts would be wiped clean. It's a celebratory thing. And Jesus is saying, this is the year. This is the year of the Lord's favor. It's here. This good news isn't something just to nod our heads at in agreement. Like, oh, wow, this is great. Fantastic. No. It doesn't allow for that. Not when you really experience it. I believe it's Tuesday is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of of Auschwitz. When the doors were opened and those that thought they were going to die and had seen death, so much death, so much depravity, so much brokenness, and they were free. It's hard to imagine liberation better than that. That's starting to get at what Jesus has come to do. It's actually bigger than that. If we can grasp that, 
or we just begin to. At first, Jesus proclaims this, and everyone's like, man, this guy's a good speaker. He's handsome. That's our hometown boy. They're in awe. They speak kind words. But then they start to put it all together and really think about what he's actually saying, what it means about him. Hey, wait, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? We know this kid. And Jesus says, you will say, physician, heal yourself. In other words, it was a common proverb. Come on, prove it. Show us. We've heard what you did in Capernaum. Do it here. Physician, heal yourself. They were taunting him. There was unbelief in their hearts. And Jesus knew it, and he was calling them out on it. And in response to their unbelief, he brings up these two stories involving two of their greatest prophets, Elijah and the one who came after him, Elisha. I really want you to read these stories. They're so good. We don't have time to get into them this morning, but in 1 Kings 17, verses 8 through 16, Elijah is sent to a foreign widow in Zarephath in the midst of this great drought and, 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 and trying time in the nation of Israel. And he's sent to a Gentile, a non-Jew, and God uses him to sustain her life and the life of her son. A beautiful story of God intervening and showing grace to a foreigner. And then in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1-14, through 14, we're introduced to Naaman. He's the commander of the Syrian army. Just think enemy, enemy of Israel. And he goes to Elisha for the healing of leprosy because this man Naaman has leprosy. And Elisha's like, okay, wash in our... He doesn't even, Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. He sends a messenger and he's like, just wash in our, in our river in the Jordan and you'll be clean. And that man's mad, he's furious. And one of his attendants is like, hey buddy, you got leprosy. Why don't you just give it a shot? Naaman, Naaman does, and he's, he's made new. His skin is like that of a baby. And he goes back to Elisha, and he commits to serving Elisha's God. It's a beautiful story of God's intervening uh, grace in the life of a foreigner and an enemy. Jesus brings up this story, these two stories, with his hometown, and this is their response. Are you kidding me? Is he, is he saying this? Is he actually saying that Gentiles and our enemies will be the ones to receive God's favor over us? He's lost his mind. He's a false prophet. There is no way. They bring him to a high point to throw him off. That's how mad they are. They can't take it. The first sermon Jesus, is, Jesus preached and they want to kill him. He just proclaimed God's good news to the poor, good news to the captive, good news to the oppressed and the marginalized. And Israel, the nation of Israel from the start was meant to be a light to the nations. It wasn't meant just to, for the, themselves. They were meant to be a light to the nations. But here, his hometown, hey, they're okay with grace. They're okay with God's, God bringing freedom as long as it's directed only at them. See, in their eyes, Jesus is proclaiming rescue for the wrong people. We're the ones oppressed, is what they're saying. Don't come talking to me about grace for foreigners and enemies. Do you know how much they've hurt us? Do you know how much we're oppressed by them? And you're talking about our foreigners and our enemies? How dare you? And they want to kill him. It's a serious scene. 
But Jesus' mission was bigger than they could handle. It was bigger than their personal interests. It was bigger than their agenda. It was bigger than their unbelief. And it wasn't Jesus' time to be thrown off a cliff. He pulls a Jedi move and he just walks right through the crowd. (laughs) You will not throw me off the cliff. (laughs) Finally, he moves on. We've got to keep reading because it really gets exciting. He moves from his hometown where he is not the hero and he moves on to Capernaum. Verse 31. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on, on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he, he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day... He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Finally, Jesus is at work. That's what he's come to do. He came and announced the work that he had come to do. And he rolls up his sleeves, goes to Capernaum, and he is at work. We're seeing in Capernaum as it is in heaven. You know that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and that we have adopted for our own prayer life? Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your rule and your reign be known in my life and the life of those around me. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Capernaum as it is in heaven. What's happening in Capernaum? The people of this small lakeside city are astonished and amazed. Jesus demonstrates authority and power in his teaching. Authority and power over unclean spirits. Authority and power over sickness. This high fever of Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus actually speaks to the fever and it leaves Peter's mother-in-law. What are we seeing? We're seeing the anointed one at work. He's setting captives free. This is the kingdom of God having come to Capernaum. What's the kingdom of God? It's the rule of God in and through his son breaking into Capernaum, breaking into their present day experience. So what's happening? Demonic forces are fleeing. Sickness, it can't take, it can't be present. The powers of evil are no match. Freedom, healing, wholeness. All this is coming to this small city of Capernaum. In Capernaum, 
as it is in heaven is happening before our eyes at the end of Luke 4. And you know what I think of after I read this? In St. Pete, God, as it is in heaven. Bring it, Lord. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in St. Pete as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom break onto the scene in our present experience in St. Pete as it is in heaven. And that's a good prayer for us as a church as we move forward on mission here. This is for anyone who has experienced the unraveling effect of sin. That's, that's me. Have you experienced the unraveling effect of sin? I, I believe you have because we live in a sinful and broken world, but I have some good news for you. And it's the same good news that Jesus proclaimed in Nazareth. There's freedom for the captives. There's hope for those who are bound. There's liberty for those who are oppressed. Verse 40, I just love it. Jesus doesn't do this one big massive healing. He's like, I'm tired. Y'all are just healed. He doesn't do that. They come to him after the sun is set, at the end of the Sabbath. Now they can come to him. They bring all the sick to him and those who are oppressed. And what does he do? He lays his hand on each one of them. Man, what does that show us? Just the compassion of God. The tireless pursuit of God. The unyielding affection and intervention of God in his son Jesus. As we wrap things up, listen, Jesus was tempted. We saw that, that wilderness showdown. He was tempted for you and me. Listen, he was tempted for you and me. And Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent for you and me. And Jesus was at work. Jesus was at work for you and me. And that work is continuing today. It's happening. It's happening in our midst. How personal are you taking this? The freedom that Isaiah prophesied about is the freedom that Jesus has won for us through his obedient life, through his death and resurrection. That's a finished work. So Jesus is not the hometown hero. No. No. He's the obedient son. He's the victorious king. And he was sent for our freedom and our rescue. That's good news. It's worth repeating. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of freedom in your son, Jesus. There is no sin. There is no shame. There is no addiction. There is no oppression. There is nothing that can withstand the liberating power of Jesus. We thank you for the victory won for us. Lord, my prayer has been that we as a church will be so overjoyed by this victory that we'd see it in a new way and that we'd leave this place with joy, but that we would also leave this place with such a confidence that this work continues today. The work you did in Capernaum is a work you'll continue to do here in St. Pete, setting captives free, making new creations in Christ Jesus, bringing people to encounter you for who you are in the face of Jesus. Would you do that, Lord? Would you do that, Lord? That is our prayer. Let your will be done here in St. Pete as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen.